0: 4 years ago there was a good deal of discontent with the administration there were many activist groups but the only one that really meant anything was led by
1: rodge blake Hello and welcome to Spacefall. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode one, The Way Back. Now, if you're looking for the introduction to our podcast, then we recommend you go and check out episode zero, which is down and safe, and that's out now as well, where we'll go into all the background admin, but we're going to dive straight into The Way Back with this one, which was first broadcast just over 40 years ago now, which, uh, yeah, makes us all feel old, on the 2nd of January, 1978. This episode was written by Terry Nation, it was directed by Michael E. Bryant, and it attracted on first broadcast in the UK, 7.4 million viewers, which a lot of shows today would kill for. Mm. And these ratings go up as this series goes on. So let's start, Richard, with our headline thoughts for this. What do you think of The
0: Way Back? As I said in the pilot, I am old enough to remember this when it was first shown here in Australia, which is about, uh, what, about a year after it was shown in England, It was filmed second, and it's quite interesting because it feels very much like a pilot episode. It really sets up the series, it sets up the universe, it sets up the central character. It's very bleak in its outlook, but I really enjoyed it. I still think it's a great episode.
1: I think it is an amazing piece of television, full stop, in terms of the acting, the production, but the amount of material that they get in there, as you say, that sets up an entire, almost an entire universe in some ways, and they do it whilst having a really good adventure, you know, a really 1984-style adventure.
0: Yes, I think the word dystopian is used a lot in relation <laughs> to what we see here, but... And, and look, it's
1: a feature of both the opening two episodes of this series that they pack in a huge amount of exposition while still being really, really wrapping stories, and they get a lot packed into 50 minutes, and The Way Back certainly does.
0: It, it hits the ground running. I mean, we see Blake meeting two unknown people and being taken to an unknown destination. And then, ten minutes in, we're presented with a massacre of a room full of people.
1: It is. And as you say, though, it is very different to a lot of the rest of the series. I mean, because of the fact that it is very much earthbound, it is setting up. And we only meet three of the seven at this point. Yes. Which is, I think is a very smart move on Terry Nation's part to introduce the seven over the course of what will actually be four episodes. That's right. And it's something that a number of the Star Trek stories actually chose to do as well. You look at Next Generation, you look at Deep Space Nine, they actually split their openings over effectively two 45-minute episodes, Mm. and the cast takes that full length to get there. So we'll dive into our analysis, and the first thing that I think we need to mention is the performance of Gareth Thomas as Blake, because he carries this episode, I don't think there's any doubt, and there's stuff in here, like you look at the interrogation scene particularly, or the stuff with him and the psychiatrist. In a lesser performance, that could be very over the top, and the whole reality of this episode could be just gone.
0: Yeah, he really is giving this his all.
1: Yeah, and he makes you believe this is he going really, on. He has
0: really bought into this.
1: Yeah, he really, really has, and it's an incredible performance. And, look, we're both huge fans of Paul Darrow's as Avon. I think a lot of Blake Seven fans are. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to as we do this podcast is looking at some of the other actors, and particularly Gareth Thomas, and actually maybe pulling them out a bit from Paul Darrow's uh, shadow, shall we say, (laughs) and giving them credit. But yeah, Blake's alone in this one, and it's a really, really good performance. Now, I want to talk about the city and the world that they build, because there's a lot of depth here. What was it that really stood out for you in terms of this world that we walk into?
0: It's very high surveillance. Our initial shot is that it's not of a character, it's actually of a security camera. Mm. It's just a throwaway line, but we're told Blake clearly in getting to his rendezvous has had to follow a route that presumably would minimise his chances of somebody detecting where is this bloke going and, and trying to follow him or monitor, or monitor what he's doing.
1: Yeah, and we very quickly get this idea that you know going outside is a... Capital 4 crime. Or yes, that's it is.
0: right. It's a category 4 offence, which which obviously is reasonably serious.
1: Yeah, so this idea that they are imprisoned in a world. You also get real attention to detail here with the way the sets are done. They're very utilitarian. The costumes are futuristic without being silly. They've actually, they've again, got that utilitarian sort of thing. Yes, you...
0: they're just sort of a lot, a lot of tunics, but yes.
1: Yeah, but you could imagine people actually wearing this stuff compared to a lot of sci fi series where you look at them and you just go, no, no one would ever actually wear that.
0: Indeed, I must admit, that's probably an area, and again, a bit of a spoiler, where Black 7 itself will probably go a little later. Uh, yes, but, it will. <laughs> I think, unfortunately. But it does set up this world. It's more, I think, probably more Soviet, perhaps, than, than a Nazi-type regime. You get this idea that they're sort of just keeping control. They're having to apply a lot of suppressants. There's a lot of surveillance. There's a lot of you know, government agents lurking that sort of thing. So it seems to be more. There is a lot of effort to keep control of this society.
1: So the big example we have of the way the society works is obviously the way that Blake is treated throughout the episode. Mm. Now, first of all, I think we'll go into the background of Blake himself and his character in a moment. But I want to keep on the world at the moment. Obviously, we have the massacre fairly early on. Yes, and and, and he's done. You know, there's no punches pulled. There's no holds barred. To the point that you have them saying, we will offer no resistance, we want to be treated, we want our rights as uh, Federation, citizens. Federation citizens, and the guards just open fire. Just gun them down. Yep. Uh, even, and I think what's really powerful is, even though we've only seen them for ten minutes, those two characters that take Blake outside and are our introduction into this world, and you sort of think, oh, maybe they're going to be part of the recurring cast, they're gone ten minutes in. <laughs> and the camera lingers on it. Like, yeah. it really just shows them, it shows you looking at the guard... She knows she's about to be killed. Like, it pauses. Hmm. And then it shoots out, and then she falls down. And then afterwards, you get the shots, you know, the blood coming out of the mouth. It's like, this is not your daddy sci-fi right now, is no,
0: it? No, this is nasty. And it, it as we said, it doesn't pull any punches at all.
1: It is. You mentioned the suppressants, which, again, just shows that idea that this is a government that is not liked. And that if people perhaps had free will or the ability to act more freely would very quickly topple If you
0: could rouse the rabble, yes, the government would potentially topple quite quickly.
1: Now, the big part of this episode is obviously the Federation deciding how they're going to deal with Blake. They've made it very clear that they don't want him to be a martyr, so they need to discredit him. Now, the way they do that, I struggle to imagine any, certainly any free-to-air series now, going down that path of having their lead character framed for child molesting.
0: No, and I think actually the charges in the original script were even nastier. It's outright basically took these kids and molested them. We're here it's these are involving children.
1: Yeah, but what we see here though is that the state or the administration acting on behalf of the state does not hesitate to implant in these children memories of being molested by Blake. So as far as those kids are concerned, they have been molested and yeah. will presumably deal with that for the rest of their lives.
0: Yes, and that's the thing. It's, it's all quite casual. It's actually discussed. It's three people in a room discussing, well, what can they do about this problem? You know, like in a board meeting, how do we deal with this? The fact that it's so casual, and it's not even that they invent these charges, it's, yes, that they take these kids, forcibly implant these memories into them, and then presumably, yes, leave them to deal with the fact that they believe... Blake molested them.
1: Yeah, and it's all in a day's work. I mean, the, yeah. the doctor has just got files. Oh, that was another case I dealt with, the yeah. and there's a file in my filing cabinet. Yeah. We also see, and I think this is a wonderful piece of world-building, the moment where Blake's lawyer goes to try and get the uh, records of these kids, and the official there won't let them, so he bribes the official, or his wife bribes the official, gives them the jury, so the official hands over the records and then goes and
0: calls security. Yes, it's hard. Because there is a a fair bit of contrivance in that scene that they just happen to have the critical discussion of the episode that really outlays what's going on in front of the functionary who then goes and dobs them in. But yes, it shows really how shallow the society is and clearly everybody is watching everybody else.
1: Yeah, everybody's out for themselves, everybody is corruptible and that to me makes for a far more interesting universe than just, you know, Star Wars-style comic bad guys.
0: Yes. It's also interesting, when you look at, perhaps viewed maybe in context of what happens a bit later in the series, the rebels that Blake is going to join, and obviously, look, the security forces have been watching this group for a while, trying to infiltrate it, watching what they're doing, who they're approaching, and them approaching Blake as a figurehead or whatever clearly is the signal okay it's time to round those guys up
1: yeah so let's talk about that because it's made very very clear it's not it's not sort of stated in exposition but it's just very clear Mm. if you watch the episode that dev tarrant has been a part of foster's group for some time yes to the point that they're clearly friends foster welcomes him it's Tarrant that sort of rounds all the rebels up and says, right, everybody come over, we're starting the yeah, meeting Yeah, it is a
0: bit of a sort of a bait-and-switch type thing because he's following him, you think, "Oh, OK, and then he comes in and they all welcome him. Yes. And then, yes, he clearly gets him in a nice, convenient little group.
1: And in come the guards.
0: Yes, uh, while he slips away. We, we mentioned the Liberation book by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore in the, in the pilot episode, but they sort of postulate the idea of, well, really, what has Blake been doing for the last four years? Because the authorities clearly are keeping an eye on him, but no other group appears to have contacted him, so how is he still a figurehead? There's all apparently these groups who think that his original trial was was faked and that he was coerced into making the statements, you know, denouncing the traitors and everything. But he clearly now is just leading a normal, suppressed, tranquilised life. I guess what
1: we don't know is how many groups perhaps tried to contact Blake, but were taken out. Yes. So somebody who was a bit more naive or not as organised went to approach Blake, the security forces found out, stopped him, killed him, and Blake would never be aware.
0: Yeah, well they make the point that the society is clearly very stratified, and we know from later episodes that Blake clearly was originally at least one of the elite, an alpha class, as they call them in the episode. We probably should talk about the suppressants in a minute, but it's possible that he was maybe downgraded. And he has just joined the faceless mass.
1: That's certainly my assumption. And look, later on, we talk about his background a bit more, and we'll get to that in sickness alpha. But yes. yeah, that's my assumption.
0: We've talked a few times about sort of the doped up masses. The suppressants is an interesting idea because you presumably would need a workforce. So I'm, I'm sort of always wondered whether it's more along the lines of what we see in the, the Doctor Who story the Sunmakers, where it's more something to just keep you on edge, make you more receptive to the Federation's propaganda and that sort of thing, rather than just tranquilising you, which would render you presumably somewhat unproductive.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's it's very much just about keeping you, you know, in a state of anxiety.
0: And unless it's something like the universe, maybe, I know it's a comic, but maybe the universe presented in Judge Dredd, which does have some similarities with Black 7. The population now lives in these big domes, and they're fairly brutally suppressed to keep them in line. But... The universe there has a very, very high unemployment rate because most of the work's now done by machines. And the population is now so big, there simply aren't enough jobs. So they have to keep control by just brutalising the the population. Whether that's something in play here, the way to deal with this increasing population is just to dope them right up to the eyeballs and control them that way. Yeah, maybe.
1: And it's interesting, I want to draw together the last couple of points you've made. Again, one of the things that's implicit in the episode without going into any detail is that These two characters, these two rebels that take Blake outside, have clearly spent some time getting to know him, befriending him, earning his trust. Certainly
0: Ravella. I don't think Richie has actually met him at the start of the episode. Well, certainly Ravella, yes, yes,
1: because she's had to convince him to basically go on a starvation diet for several days. Yes. So the suppressions wear off.
0: It's interesting, though. Blake clearly shows some signs of rebellion. I mean, even though he knows going outside is a Category 4 offence, he's still happy to go with them. Yes. So he clearly, either his desire to know something about his family is, is so extreme that he's prepared to go to any risk, or it is a case that, look, he maybe perhaps is starting to have some doubts.
1: And coming off the suppressions would it
0: help Yes, that? and maybe his you know real personality is now starting to assert itself that he is actually maybe starting to question. Because he is quite compliant when he goes with them. It's not a case of, no, I don't want anything to do with you and take off.
1: No, he, he raises the question, but then he goes on. I want to talk about the Rebels that he then goes to meet, because what I find really interesting is we get actually to see a little bit of Foster's meeting with the Rebels mm. and his plan, and it's not big sort of laser guns and armies and huge sci-fi action.
0: No, it's very small-scale stuff.
1: Yeah, it's civil disobedience... Uh, we want one world to declare independence in the next two years, mm. and they're going to disrupt some of the food manufacturing to try and stir up a bit of discontent with the administration. I like that because it's actually incredibly realistic. You could imagine a rebel group of that sort of size doing that and going, okay, well, if we disrupt a bit of the food production, people are a bit hungrier, people will be annoyed at the government, we can sort of stir that up, and you know, maybe we can encourage you know, one world out of what we assume to be hundreds declaring independence yes, and maybe, well, maybe starting the landslide
0: well it is and foster makes the point that if we can keep the security forces here busy they'll have to reduce their numbers on the outer world which would make it much easier for them to start claiming their independence
1: i want to say at this point as well the design here looks amazing that glass shot of the dome as they walk outside is really yeah, it good is. and again the way that they've made the designs of both the interior of the dome and the exterior of the dome now one's done on Video ones done on film, which I think adds to a sense that we you know this is a bit different and a bit edgier. But it's just, it doesn't look like a silly space corridor. It looks like a functional city where masses would live. Mm. And then outside just looks like, well, these are probably some ruins left from the old days. They've got the numbers painted on all the columns, yep. which I really like. It makes it feel like that Orwellian dystopian sort of society.
0: Yep, we know who you are, we know where you are. Yep. <laughs>
1: And then we see the Federation guards, which again, given that this is episode one of the series, and that is a design that will last for the next four seasons, it is an iconic design and really effective. They are sinister.
0: They are. It's it's that faceless symbol of authority and the Federation's willingness to obviously just step on anyone who gets in its way.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we need to talk now, I think, about the way that, blake's backstory is brought up and i think it's a very brave but very effective decision that all of his backstory happened four years ago and we get told it in a monologue by foster mm. now it's a really well written and very well shot monologue and he delivers that really really well but all the stuff about blake being a rebel has kind of happened four years back and we're just meant to sort of take it i just think it's a really odd decision but it works and again, really good direction there where you get Blake starting to have those memory flashbacks, and distinguishing the flashbacks from what's actually happening is very, very cleverly done, given that it is basically history repeating itself. Mm.
0: It is, yes. Him um, him being belted with the axe handle, or <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fairly light blow with the yes. axe handle. Yes, yes. Uh, um, but um, having made that joke, I mean, those scenes of him in what's obviously the torture device or where they're pulling his mind apart and putting it back together. They're really quite effective.
1: Yeah, there's a real filmic quality to the way Michael E. Bryant has directed this. Now, Michael E. Bryant had done a lot of Doctor Whos at this stage. Yes. um, Some very well-regarded ones in particular. And he's done a lot of interviews on Doctor Who DVDs in the making of documentaries. And at this stage, he really was that sort of young go-getter director that wanted to make a mark, Mm. wanted it to be different. And you can see, so he's going for the different camera angles. He's doing the close-up of Foster's face when he does the dialogue. As you say, the stuff in the interrogation machine where it's all just black lit at the back and then pulls out...
0: Just these flashing lights at this machine.
1: Yeah, the way that he uh, films the stuff with Blake in the interrogation cell. This is not just, OK, we'll point the camera and shoot and get the shot. This no, he's really actually been, put been some time yeah. into this. Yeah.
0: And, of course, that then continues into the scene where he's being caught when he comes back into the city and he's then being treated, in inverted commas, by Dr. Haven, And it, it's very much a 1984-style interrogation. The idea is, is to make Blake think that he's starting to go mad. You know, you've had a shock. We need to understand why. Don't think anymore. Just relax. We'll sort it all out will help you to find the truth. What what is the nature of reality? Yes, that's right. Uh, And
1: that that scene is almost a direct lift from 1984. Mm.
0: Blake's sort of sitting there going, no, no, I am not insane. I'm not insane. I saw these things happen. I'm not insane.
1: There's the, I believe you. I believe you think you saw them.
0: Yes. Again, that constant undermining. And he, of course, this is clearly when we start to get more flashbacks that, that he's had what we would now probably call post-traumatic stress disorder from having seen the massacre or whatever, or certainly a a stressful situation. And as they say in the episode, he's now starting those blocks around his memory are now starting to break down.
1: Yeah, it is very effectively done. We move into the trial, and again, I just want to really compliment the way the trial's done because the detail they go into there is just really superb. It could have been very straightforward, very blinkered, but even something like the little detail of when the prosecutor and the defence counsel enter their data and the defence one sort of over in about two seconds and the prosecution one goes on and on and on and and Morag just has that really smug look of clearly my case is far better than yours.
0: Yes, we've got him. yeah, Yeah, we've
1: got... It's just a really good... Piece of detail.
0: Plus, plus, of course, you've gone all through the setup before that where they've got his lawyer involved. and You know, he's clearly the young, ambitious lawyer. You know, Van Glynn goes through that charade. We want you to help this man. You know, we need you to really work with this man and try and mount a solid defence for him. You know, we have to help him. You know, all that entire charade around how that works. Yeah,
1: and I think this is a really interesting point because clearly there would have been a temptation once Blake had been outside and been at Foster's meeting and he'd been caught just to shoot him. Mm. But clearly the Federation doesn't want to do that. There clearly is enough of a legend around him that Blake just suddenly disappearing would be, oh, what's happened? Yes, Has he been taken out? So they've got to discredit him. And the way in which they do that, as you say, is really, really good. I like that conversation between Van Glynd and Varon as the lawyer, because presumably as a a lawyer, he's part of the elite, Mm. or, or certainly the upper crust. And so whether they are on the suppressants or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's implied they're not.
0: Well, if you're going to suppress the bulk of the population, you would have to have way clearly for the elite and the middle classes to to override that so whether you have separate food producing facilities which would seem probably a bit of overkill so whether and again in a parallel to the sun makers whether they have the pills they can take that allow them to function
1: yeah you see i don't know if that would work because i get the feeling that Varon is perhaps not a part of the suppressed population but is not in on what the elite's doing either.
0: Clearly not. I mean, there is obviously a functioning middle class... ...in the Blake 7 universe. You have the proles, basically, at at the lower end of it, who are clearly suppressed, kept in line, closely monitored. You then sort of have, obviously, a a middle class of, like, new middle management, your white-collar roles, etc. Lawyers,
1: senior bureaucrats, officials, that sort of thing,
0: yeah. And then you clearly, above that, have the elite.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes that conversation so important, because... I imagine that it would be valuable for people like Glynd to have people like Varon go to dinner parties, so to speak, and say, well, look, I was involved with the Blake trial and they asked me to give him every bit of help and it was all yes. fair and it was it, all open. It all
0: builds the narrative.
1: It all builds the narrative, that's right. <clears> so <throat> that that's a really important scene.
0: As we said, there are a few contrivances in the episode and, and we did mention... Again, giving away half the plot in front of the functionary who dobs them in. There are, of course, another couple like Tarrant walking into the courtroom just at the right moment.
1: Yeah, it's a lovely dramatic moment, but it makes no sense as something for Tarrant to do.
0: No, considering he's just going on about how concerned he is about his cover being blown. The inference I had is he's clearly still working. There are more either in this group or other groups that he's now working with.
1: Or potentially he doesn't want to be a victim of a reprisal from the rebels. If you think about an IRA parallel... That would be exactly the sort of thing where, you know, a, a UK policeman who was influenced and brought down an IRA cell doesn't want to be known because other cells will then yes, make him target targeted. him. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Varon obviously now clearly starts to doubt the story and goes and starts doing some investigating. You then, of course, have another fair contrivance with the magic door that uh, the sound travels clearly only one way where they can hear Vengelin's conversation through the door.
1: And Varon just happens to know someone who can get him equipment to get him outside. Yes,
0: and of course being clean mentioned oh the tunnels. <laughs> it's a trip to the audience that, that something isn't right. Yes. But...
1: It is that old sort of detective show, nobody ever mentioned murder. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean you're being carried along by it, so it does work. You are. Shall we mention at this point the two members of The Seven that we are introduced
0: to in this episode? After Blake is tranquilised in the courtroom, he wakes up in a holding cell to find someone going through his pockets. And this, of course, is Villa as played by Michael Keating. Yes, who really, I I think, is a much more cynical, I I think, performance than he does, really, sadly, in the rest of the series. It, It is. Villa is
1: perhaps the character that changes the most as the series goes on. I think because the writers don't quite know what to do with him. The, the production team clearly likes Michael Keating, with the exception of Nation, we'll get to that in a moment. Yes. They clearly like him as an actor. He likes the character. He's, now, Keating has said that he was a very big fan of the show himself. He enjoyed working on the show. Uh, and,
0: and he quickly becomes quite popular with the viewers.
1: Yeah, that's right. So he has to be kept on, but they don't really know what to do with him. And it's really interesting watching his character here, because as you say, it, it is almost sinister. Mm. And when he starts talking about... I've had my head adjusted by some of the best in the business but it just won't stay adjusted. That that again it's one line but it quickly tells you this guy is a bit sinister, he is clearly an actual criminal and again that this is the sort of society where you know mind altering operations are just done.
0: Yeah and clearly he you know on the fourth or fifth attempt or whatever it still hasn't worked so now we're left with what do we do we deport him.
1: Yeah. We also meet Jenna who is the one that stops Villa going through Black's pockets.
0: And, and again, she's harder here, I think, than she is perhaps later in the series, because it's very much, you know, no one gives a damn about you. Yes. I, I guess you can maybe argue that is a bit of a front, because she does have the scene a bit later where she starts to think, well, actually, hang on, this is really happening and I am really going to be deported.
1: Yeah, and that, I think, does make for a fairly genuine character, in that you can be terrified and put up a front at the same mm. time. And that's the sort of thing she would do. She's introduced as a smuggler in a very sort of Ned Kelly kind of, mm. you know, way that she's a bit notorious, maybe.
0: Yes. Well, free trade or free trader, as she calls herself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's very clearly inferred that she is a criminal. Interestingly, neither Villa or Jenna are hurting other people, shall we say. They are not victimless crimes, because theft obviously is a victim crime, but they're not... They're, 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 they're not, not of, violent they're criminals. They're not violent criminals. That's what I was trying to say. They're not violent criminals. Yes. No.
0: And really, uh, and we're probably spoiling a little, with one exception, none of them really are violent criminals. I mean, Avon, when we meet him, is a white-collar criminal. Yes. Kelly will not really ever know what she did, but with the exception of Gan, really, none of them are violent criminals.
1: Yeah, but they're given that hard edge, and so it is made very clear that this is a serious thing that's happening, and that deportation of Cygnus Alpha is
0: a big deal. Yes. Uh, Varon even makes the point that really, when he's trying to build Blake's defence, that look, spending your life in a mental institution would be far preferable.
1: Mm. So yeah, two characters that are introduced there, but only two.
0: Varon now is starting to perhaps believe that there are some loopholes in Blake's charges, and of course now sets out to investigate on his own. We've mentioned that the public records office a couple of times. I must admit, I hope to put a shout out, I did really like the little Walkman with the shades. You know, and he's clearly really getting into it, he's sitting there doing his little dance through the thing. I actually thought that was really quite funny. It is, and I like the way that Varon actually goes home to
1: his wife, and he's a real person, he goes home to his wife, he talks about his day at work, and in the context of that it starts to go, well maybe I didn't like that, and it's much better than him just going off himself.
0: Um, And his wife of course, well all right. Well, give me a minute and I'll come with you. Mm. Clearly they go and investigate, they do actually succeed in uncovering the truth. The administration is obviously flagged that they might be close to being rumbled because they suddenly bring the departure to Cygnus Alpha forward. Yes. And it really, again, it ends really quite bleakly. I mean, Varon and his wife do succeed in uncovering the truth. They find the site of the massacre. But given that's a bit later, those bodies must have been getting a bit ripe. <laughs> uh, that, that, that crossed my mind I as would well. Have thought by that point. But, but I
1: did wonder, if you were a viewer watching this for the first time, not knowing what's to come... Is there a part of you that goes, maybe the plot is that they do rumble the administration and we see the start of a rebellion on Earth?
0: Yes, because there is that sort of that racing against the clock deal. You know, Blake's, they bring the flight forward. How close is the lawyer to getting him held? Yes. They put him on the ship. You know, and Jenna says, oh, don't worry, there's still time.
1: Yes, and if this was many other series, the lawyer would get there just in the nick of time, yes. so to speak.
0: And it, again, it sort of shows how bleak this is that, no, the ship does take off. And, and we then pan back to two dead bodies lying on the ground with, yes. with Jeremy Wilkins standing over them. And, and again, quite casually, just deciding how he's going to hide their deaths. Yes. I think a transporter accident. Killed instantly. Very tragic.
1: And we then get to the final scene where you see Blake's absolute determination. Yes. Where he looks at the Earth and the Moon disappearing. Take one last look. No, I'm coming back. That's right. And he means it. This is an amazing piece of television. It's not just an amazing episode of Black Seven, it is an amazing piece of television.
0: It, it's very different, yes. uh, really, to anything being made at the time.
1: Yes, in terms of the direction, the style, the tone. Yeah, really impressive stuff. And it sets up the series really, really well. But unlike most pilot episodes, as you mentioned earlier, Richard, we still haven't finished the setup yet. We've got much more setup still to go. Mm. We still haven't met over half of the seven. That's
0: right. So, a lot to do. And we're left, really, on a cliffhanger. Yes. It's not nice and neatly wrapped up that, oh, well, you know, now our group's assembled and now we're going gonna... it, to... It's very much, okay, well, this bloke's actually on the ship being sent to spend the rest of his life on a penal colony. Now what?
1: Yeah. Now what? We'll discuss now what next episode. Mm. But we're going to move to the first set of our regular segments. The first regular segment that we want to talk about each episode is guest stars. We've got a number to go through here. I'll start with Robert Beatty as Bran Foster. Now, this actor has credits going back to 1939. So he's a very established actor. He was a big deal when he was cast to be a guest star in a Doctor Who story, The Tenth Planet. He was quite a name for them to get in Doctor Who in 1966. Yes, he was. He was in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Where Eagles Dare, The Return of the Pink Panther, Superman 4, and just he's got pages and pages of credits. He was Canadian, I
0: think. He was Canadian, yeah. He has a lot of UK TV credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He turns up in a lot of well known series.
1: I also want to mention Robert James's Ven Glind, who, again, if this was played in any sort of an archway or an over the top way, mm-hmm. wouldn't work. But being just, this is just the Attorney General effectively doing his day job. He does it really, really well. He's in two Doctor Whos, The Mask of and The Power of the Daleks. He appears in Taggard, Rumpole of the Bailey, Return of the Antelope. He plays Ramsay MacDonald in Church of the Wilderness Years, which was a big sort of dramatic series a few years before this. He's in The On Eden Line, Shadow of the Tower, which is another one of those big BBC sort of tentpole historical dramas. Some real big sort of flagship series for the BBC.
0: Yes. Now, of course, playing Dev Tarrant, we have Jeremy Wilkin. Yes. Very well played. Yes. He, of course, is perhaps best known. Well, he'd been the star of a series in the sixties called Undermind, which was a, a sort of a sci-fi series about an alien invasion. Probably one of his most notable genre appearances. He was the voice of Virgil Tracy and, and other voices in the second series of Thunderbirds. Yes. Um, and of course, his uh, voices in Captain Scarlet. Um, and he did a fair bit of work on Gerry Anderson series like UFO and the secret service but probably his best known genre performance i think perhaps is is uh, in revenge of the cybermen yes i think for doctor who which again is a great performance it is
1: he plays that sort of sniveling bad guy really really well but but as you said earlier the way that he goes from who's this guy he looks a bit creepy to oh he's one of the good guys that's cool mm. to okay he's one of the bad guys for real
0: yeah i thought he was really good in this he's very very good now, then we have, playing Tell Varon, is uh, Michael Halsey. Now, he, I think, this is actually one of his last UK acting credits, I mm, think. Because is. his later years were all spent in the United States. And if you look at the array of stuff he did there, pretty much, I think, from right across the 1980s, pretty much you name a popular series and he was in it, mm. I think. So a really
1: detailed cast. We haven't gone through all of them, but they're just some no, of the big No, we ones. haven't.
0: I mean, like Pippa Steele, who plays Varon's wife, she did a lot of work with Hammer. She's in quite a few Hammer movies, I think.
1: All right, well, the next segment we want to do is what we call Liberator Database, which is where we look at what aspects of this episode are part of the bigger world-building of the series. And the answer here is, well, basically everything Pretty much everything, really. Um, We are introduced to Blake, General and Villa. We're introduced to the concept of the Federation, the administration on Earth, the rebellion, all the backstory, I mean... I think we've sort of covered this. and
0: Yeah, we have. And really, everything in the series now is building on this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s, which is where we want to have a honest look at how this series looks and feels and what it's drawing from and where it may have strayed a little bit. I just want to give a bit of a context to things that were going on, both in the lead-up to Blake 7 and across the series. In the UK, you had the IMF bailout in 1976, which is where their economy was just... Basically, in the tank. Well,
0: I was going to say it, the mid to late '70s was a fairly bleak time, really, in in Britain.
1: You had the oil crisis in '73, which led to the energy crisis. You had the miners' strike in '73 '74, and the fall of the Heath government. Yep. As I said, you had the IMF bailout in 1976, which is where their economy was sort of a bit of a world embarrassment, frankly. You had all of the rumours about Harold Wilson as prime minister as to you know, whether he was a KGB agent. Whether the CIA was out to take him out, he has his sudden shock resignation in 1976, which again fueled those conspiracy theories that you know he was an agent of someone or he's being undermined mm-hmm. by someone across the rest of the world. Obviously, Nixon resigns after Watergate in 74, which is where you start to see, you know, well, I mean, the, the president of the United States basically resigning for corruption. Yes, you know that that sort of really changed the world. You've had the Vietnam War going on and the fall of Saigon in 1975. Interestingly enough, although it hasn't happened yet, the Camp David Accords come in in 1978, which is, again, that sort of sense of the world changing a bit, but also all of the stuff that's going on internationally. I mean, Lila Khalid as a terrorist has been around for a while, but you've had the Black September stuff, the PLO's mm. big thing at the moment. Idi Amin has sort of been and gone by now, but <laughs> he's very much in the, in the zeitgeist. So there's a lot of a sense of society not working. Of the economy not working, people are out of work, energy's a problem, politicians are corrupt, there's unrest, there's a real sense of terrorism. And obviously you've got the IRA sort of bubbling along in the UK, you know, from the 1920s basically, and that's certainly there in the 70s. But as I said, particularly in the Middle East now, you're really starting to see that concept of Middle Eastern terrorism affecting the UK and the US in that they're now targeting Western people to some extent. Mm. Not in the same way as they do now, but, you know, that idea of plane hijackings, etc., is starting to come in, in the 70s. It is a world that I think is just ripe for Blake 7 to come mm. into.
0: This is obviously 1970s, so their idea of technology in that, I mean, Varon has that cool little camera. That is a very cool little prop.
1: It is a very nice little prop, and the way the uh, scanner works on it is really good. Yes,
0: the utilitarian power pack on the belt. It has. We mentioned the little Walkman device that that the public records guy has.
1: The security cameras, again, are a wonderful design, but they're a design that is clearly based on 1970s technology. Yes. Because now, I mean, you could have a security camera that was completely invisible in tall effect. But I'm glad that it isn't, because that idea of that sort of futuristic security camera being ever present
0: well that's the is thing really good I, I suppose that it, it does feed that idea of we're watching and we want you to know that we're watching exactly it's a highly visible symbol of the Federation I had a couple other notes here I mean look clearly the internet and technology such as Skype etc are a long way off when this was filmed but you know Blake gets viz takes <laughs> every few months from his relatives you know that feels kind of dated now
1: it does but I don't mind it too much because it does give that idea of a long distance. Yes. And that they are on an outer colony and Yes, and way. I mean
0: at the time look, nobody would have blinked twice at that. No. So.
1: no. Okay. At this point we would normally do what cool line did Boucher give Avon this week? <laughs> but unfortunately we haven't met Avon yet, so no. we can't do
0: that. Although I guess he is in the original
1: script. Which brings us to our final segment, which is our player of the week.
0: For me, I think it has to be Gareth Thomas's blake.
1: Uh, Yeah, look, I would agree. If I was going for somebody else, I'd actually pick Robert Beatty as Brad Foster. Yep. Because the way that he delivers that monologue, where basically he is setting up the entire series and he does it really, really convincingly. And I probably would also have to give a nod to Michael Lee Bryant as the director because this is a wonderfully Mm. filmically directed show. But look, any other episode, either of those could win this. But you're right, Gareth Thomas as Blake has to be the player in this
0: one. Well, it does, because really... The series revolves, this episode in particular, and really, if you don't buy him, you really can't buy into the series.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And he gives it a believability. I mean, all of his Royal Shakespeare Company background comes out here. Mm. And he he treats it as though he's doing Hamlet. Mm. And it's all the better for it. Well, that's our episode on the way back. We've had a lot to unpack there, but I really enjoyed watching this episode again.
0: Likewise. Likewise. Um, Series one and two are probably the ones I get out more frequently, perhaps, in the later seasons.
1: But by the same token, I was thinking about this as I watched it. If I just want to pull out one or two Blake Sevens to watch, mm. they're generally not something like The Way Back. No, that's true. So I actually hadn't seen this for quite a while, and I thoroughly enjoyed seeing it again. And yeah, there's a lot that I think we've had some fun unpacking.
0: It. You have. Hopefully, you've had some fun too.
1: So that's it for this episode. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with. Spacefall
0: Spacefall
1: Looking forward to that one As am I Alright, we'll talk then Thank you for listening to Spacefall A Blake 7 podcast Recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan If you enjoy our chat Please subscribe and leave a review we can be contacted by email via space4pc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com space4pc and on Twitter at Space4PC. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate Podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who Show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake Seven.
0: See you then.